you're talking about. Exactly. So but I think uh, it's a state of mind, Dr. Bob. Yeah. You could be a kid of a man. I, I think if you, state of mind. State yeah, of mind exactly. So welcome to Growing Up in America. This is uh, uh, 90.1 KPFT. It is. <laughs> and uh, this is a discussion on our children, public policy. How do we as a city and a community do when it comes to taking care of every single one of our children? We're a production of Children at Risk, which is the voice of uh, Texas's children, nonprofit organization dedicated to research, public policy, law, and collaborative action on behalf of Texas's youth. Today, we're going to be focusing on ending poverty and child poverty, Lauren. Uh, Lauren is our Generation Z correspondent, and we love having her in here, and and. We were talking before the show. What makes Generation Z, by the way? Because I bet you a lot of people don't know what that is. Um, so I've heard that the technical cutoff, as it is with generations, is a little yeah. fuzzy. It's like yeah. somewhere in the like post-1995. I've been asked when I didn't know, do you remember 9-11? And if the answer is yes, you're a millennial. And if the answer is no, you're Gen Z. So okay. I was alive, but I was two and a half. So I was too young. So I have no memory of it. Um, so that puts me in the Gen Z camp. Lauren, I know on the post-election show, we talked about how Generation Z really voted this time, as opposed mm-hmm. to a lot of other young people who traditionally don't vote. Why is that? Are Generation Z, is it, are they more engaged? What's the deal? Um, I think that, I think Generation Z is more engaged. And I think a lot of that has to do with being raised in like the information world. Like, you know, Gen Z isn't, they're not necessarily hard to reach if you know where to find them. And I think that thankfully, um, you know, the political infrastructure is finding them and is and is seeing where they are and is innovating ways to engage them and to bring them into the process. Um, and I just think that like, it's been maybe, you know, some people say every generation feels like this. Yeah. Like the world is kind of ending all the time. And I think that that has always motivated young people. Um but with pandemics and the imminent threat of climate change, I think Generation Z is trying to like, like I'm putting away retirement money I would love to spend. Mm-hmm. The world doesn't end first. One of the things that I think is interesting about uh, uh, Generation Z is that when you looked at voting totals uh, across the country, that they overwhelmingly voted more progressive, right? I mm-hmm. mean, uh, but I also remember right in the 60s, you had all these hippies that were very progressive, if you will, liberal, and a lot of them ended up being Reagan Republicans. What are the chances that these Generation Z kids who voted so overwhelmingly Democratic that they may change over time? I mean, I can't imagine them voting, of course, for today's Republican sure. Party. And I think that's going to be part of the deciding factor. I mean, you know, I was always told growing up that as you grow up, you move to the right. And while I can't say that is ringing true in my life, um, I mean, I think a lot of it does have to come with as you garner wealth, as your priorities change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that can change how you vote. But I think that, you know, it will depend on what I, you know, I talk to family members of mine who are, you know, pretty right leaning. And it's like, I, I don't, you know, you were a Reagan Republican and maybe then there was some, you know, decorum amongst the right. But like the PR that they're giving us these days, it's not very convincing. If you're not in it, they're not making you want to be part of it because like it's, I mean, they took 12 votes to pick a speaker (laughs) of the house. That's humiliating. (laughs) That's so embarrassing. And, you know, they have Kanye. Like, that's embarrassing. Yeah, that is embarrassing. So I think it will depend on, you know, I think Republicans are in a moment right now and how they come out of that moment and, you know, where the priorities actually land for, you know, the next era of their party. I think we'll say a lot about whether or not they sway the current Gen Z voters as they get older and, you know, care about taxes more and all of that. I read an analysis of voting one time that talked about the reason people vote the way they are. Uh, the the reason young people vote the way they do is often not a reaction to a positive president, but a reaction against sort of negative politics mm-hmm. and bad presidents. And so what we see in many ways is this Generation Z reaction against a Trump presidency, right? Well, that yeah. was horrible, right? So yeah. it's uh, sort of an interesting thing. We're going to talk today. Our, the primary focus of our show today is going to be on ending poverty. And we're going to talk to people all across the state of Texas who are running programs, who are leaders in the fight 
against poverty in our state. And one of the things, you know, whenever we've done these anti-poverty summits at Children at Risk, I always tell the same sort of dumb story, right? Which is uh, we have, uh, my wife has relatives from Sweden and they were visiting us here in, in the United States. And I've been to Sweden many times and uh, Sweden has it going on when it comes to the fight against poverty. And But we were at my house, and they said, no, how do I get this show on the cable? And I said, well, you just press this button, and you talk into it. And and they laughed. They thought I was joking because I tend to joke. And, uh, and I said, oh, no, no, this isn't fun. That's really what you do. We have solved talking remote controls in this country. You guys may have solved poverty, <laughs> but we got the talking remote control down. And in a sense, you know, people are very proud of our country Yet we have not done what many other countries have done, which is sort of win many of the battles in yeah. the fight against poverty. And so it's it's interesting that it's our children that bear the brunt of that right mm-hmm. as we move forward. So uh, so a good program today. Let's start. <clears throat> of course, one of the things that I want to mention today is that in we'll be doing our thumbs up, thumbs down here in just a second. But our date of the day, the number, and I'm going to see if you guess this, 1.4. Any idea? 1.4? I'm going to guess that that it's going to be like a 1.4 times more likely for children who do or don't experience poverty. I don't know what they'd be more likely to do, but that's my my guess that it will be an order of of likeliness. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay. Well, we'll see what we we have uh 7 million over 7 million children in the state of Texas. And when we look at those 60% of those kids qualify for free or reduced school lunch. Mm -hmm. So 60% of our children are coming from low-income families. And while the official live below the poverty rate line is around 25% of our kids, uh, the fact that more than half of our kids are in struggling households, I think is important for us to talk about. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, We're going to talk today about... Oh, we got a music first, Dr. Bob. And I feel like today's episode is a little spicy. You know, it's topics people care about. So I'd like to remind everyone that if you want to jump in, talk about poverty with us, you can call 713-526-5738 and press 2 and you'll be connected right in because we'd love to hear your thoughts. And the, the password is spicy, I believe. You just and, have to say yeah. spicy just and say we'll spicy, put you right on the air. And Rebecca sends you straight through. Straight through the air. Spicy. Very good. Who was that? Do you know who that was singing? You probably know that. Oh, off the- yeah. It's Involver by, I think, Anita. Is that her name? Oh, wow. Or something like that. Okay, very good. I love the music because, you know, I have all these Generation Z people here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's it's good to hear this stuff. UBI, Universal Basic Income. Uh, the basics of the UBI, tell, tell us a little bit about what the basics of UBI are. Um, so as I understand it, and of course, like anything else, it's not actually one defined thing, but, you know, a series of building a policy choice. But the concept is that regardless of you know, full-time or part-time employment status, everyone would receive some form, kind of like social security, but for everybody. But for everyone. So everyone, you know, adults would receive some form of income from the government to, you know, sustain themselves regardless of if they had a job. Um, And at least I became familiar with UBI as, you know, a defined policy proposal through Andrew Yang's presidential campaign. He's the one who made it popular, right? He brought it to America. Yeah. And and the idea would be that every single person might get a thousand dollars a month or $1,500 or $500 a month. But the idea is that there's this universal basic income and not determined by how much you make. Right. So if you're a billionaire, you get $500 a month or a thousand dollars a month. If you're a newborn child from a low income family, thousand dollars a month. So everyone gets this universal basic income. Uh, and so it's thumbs up, thumbs down. Um, I sort of like this idea. How about you? And I'm happy to talk more about it, but tell me. Um, I mean, I do, of course, you know, where does money come from? Blah, 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 whatever. Conceptually, um, I think the more theoretical reasons to not do it around like incentive to work and like blah, blah, I think those are all bull. Um, So I'm a fan. You know, it it was a little daunting to me when I first heard. I thought, well, you know, who's going to pay for this? But as you get into it, what you realize it's significant economic stimulus. And I remember talking in the middle of the pandemic to uh, one of my good buddies, Jerry Hawkins, who's up at Dallas Truth and mm-hmm. Racial Justice. And and I said, what do you think of our time? Because pr- Trump's president, and he says, well, you know, these are very odd times. Who would think that a president like Trump would sort of reign over 
universal yep. basic income with all of us getting a check, you know? Yep. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting thing. And what did we see? The stimulus really helped our country. It really helped certainly those in poverty. And it, it really uh, was a good thing overall for America, certainly for children. Yeah. So, so I sort of became sold on it because we sort of had this practice session, if you will. Yeah, we did. And I think that um, what is interesting and, you know, I think we lose the fact that like when people have money, they're going to spend money and overwhelmingly people spend money in the places where they live. So you know, that is a direct, you know, injection of, of funds into local business. Um, I think it gives, you know, more appropriate buying power to, you know, women, for example, who are more likely to end up caring for a child, um, which can interrupt their employment. And thus, like in our current system, interrupt their, you know, income and then ability to have buying power while women hold like 60% of the buying power, um, in the country. So giving people, money does that. And it also, I have a study actually for, for this. Yeah. There's a study going on. It has not finished yet. Concept being researchers are giving low income mothers monthly money, you know, to really prove, and they're not just seeing, you know, third grade reading scores. They're actually doing brain scans of their infants as they're receiving the money. And the kind of, they did an initial findings, I think after one year of the study, um, and it is a randomized trial, which you don't often get in this right, kind of thing, right. which is very exciting. And I'm going to read from the Atlantic's article about it. Babies whose mothers received $333 a month had more of the brain waves that tend to be linked to better cognitive and social emotional skills. So it makes our babies smarter. It, yeah, it actually, like your mother, you know, if you're, you know, compared to other low income yeah. babies or babies from low income families, the actual brain makeup of children whose moms had that extra money to spend a month are are better lined up for all of the things that we care about later on in terms of, you know, pre-K, early childhood, kindergarten, third grade reading, all of that. So like poverty is a choice and poverty is a choice that leaves some children behind, like not just in, you know, mom's not reading to you, so you can't read as fast. Like their brain's development is different because they were in that situation. And who knows, you know, the exact mechanism of what it is about $300 a month, I think would be, you know, further analysis from this study and ones beyond it. But like, hello. Yeah, I know. Concept. And I just think of all the, and, and someone did a bunch of points for us here, right? Reduces the poverty rate, reduces income inequality, eliminates the need for many government programs, improves physical and mental health, makes higher education more accessible, improves wages, gives domestic violence victims more freedom, encourages entrepreneurship. I mean, it goes on and on. Yeah. And so I know the knee jerk reaction is like, what the hell? The money what out? is this? You know, yeah. what, what are we going to do? But the fact that it's an incentive uh, and it's something that drives the economy in a, yeah. in a much faster well, way. Well, talk about the crime reduction yeah, and how much money you save in prisons, how much money you save from the infrastructure you need to means test other government programs that you hypothetically wouldn't need. Plus, it's actually interesting to your point about your um, relatives that I heard, and I wish I had looked up a source for this, but I looked it up when I heard it and it was true. Um, that in the like Scandinavian countries that have, you know, in America, you hear a lot about like, well, they don't actually take any money home, blah, blah. Not true. Monthly, they have on average a very comparable disposable income to people in the United States. So anyways, they make it work, right? It's, it's, uh, very interesting. So, uh, I think we're ready to get to some guests. So, uh, do we have any guests? I don't think we have any guests yet. Oh, no guests. Wow. We're having trouble with the guests. So, uh, here's the other thing though. I think, uh, what are the chances that universal basic income comes to fruition? I think they're so low. Um, I think, you know, we're, I don't want to give away our conversation on the child tax credit because it's coming later. Feel unless free. we want to jump into it. No, no, it. jump into it. Okay, yeah, absolutely. we can jump right into it's, it. Because in a sense, it's a form it, of yeah. UBI specifically for kids. Yeah. Um, oh, first we got to listen to some T-Swift, Dr. Mom. Okay. Before we'll we talk about the child okay, tax let's credit. let's go. Well, that, that's it. That's it. 
That's and that was Taylor get. Swift's karma from Midnight's. Um, and I, I love, think I love how we get the show going. We're not like we don't fade no. out and fade into like, boom. That's All it. All right. Yeah. So I think the child tax credit, in a way, let me let me bring it to karma because in a way yeah, you let's are hear. Let's hear. putting money into children that they will later mm-hmm. make or more likely to make mm-hmm. as adults. Um, boom, made that relevant. It's Anyways, an investment. It is an investment, we might say. Um, so, you know, similarly, the child... I forgot where I was now before we listened to that, and I was going to bring it up, and I don't remember why. Well, the child tax credit, right? What, what's... The, it was what, you... Okay, that, there we go. You were asking me how likely it is. I think the child tax credit, we can all agree, was an amazing endorsement for, again, even if we're not talking about everybody, even if we're not talking about whatever... Children, I think, right. you know, our whole kind of shtick is based off of the fact exactly. that that's something people care about. Yeah. Was a ringing, overwhelming endorsement for a right. child, for a, a UBI or some kind of just direct, because for those of you who don't know. And it was effective. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Like, it was so effective for families across the board, especially, you know, we can talk, we'll talk about low-income families, but everybody, you know, was families who got to save for college, yep. who got to, you know, travel, which... I don't have any problem with people, you know, spending mm-hmm. their little extra money to do that. That those kinds of experiences that we know are so good for building families and relationships and and security in the home. And then it ended. Yeah. And then it went away. <laughs> and now we do we Well, Congress didn't renew it. Exactly. Right, so. It ended and and that seems to have been, you know, for despite our best efforts in many ways the end of the conversation. Like I'm not hearing the energy because like it was kind of sent to die, which makes me think that UBI is unlikely, unfortunately. Um, well, I think it's an idea, though. I mean, people who know this and who do the research understand it's a good idea. People yeah. who learn about it understand it's a good idea. But and famously, so whether, whether legislators are not people who know it and who do the research on it. Legislators aren't historically <laughs> that smart sometimes, right? And so I think that uh, when we talk about UBI or when we talk about the child tax credit, I think the chances of the child tax credit sort of reemerging down the road are much greater than UBI. Oh, absolutely. And I think it becomes sort of a precursor to a UBI. Yes. A UBI uh, as we go down. I and, think and, the, and the, frankly, the economic stimulus, you know, mm-hmm. people are going to have to come back to it. It was a Republican, you know, yeah. com- emerged from a Republican president. And so uh, it it worked. Yeah. It worked really well. And well. I think what is potentially helpful, and I think that's a good point that, like, yes, there's a foundation that can hopefully build because, you know, these things that it, it starts small and it's yeah. and it snowballs. So uh, I guess we're both thumbs up on the universal basic are. income. We're both thumbs up on child tra- income to child tax credit. Yes. Yeah. Very we good. Are. All right. Let's hear a little bit of music before we go to Layla. Layla, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Very good. So Layla Mazzali is uh, with us. She is uh, the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation at Children at Risk. And uh, Layla, I I know you're out in California. Tell us a little bit about uh, the rains out there. It's pretty bad these days, right? Yeah, it's pretty bad. I would say um, it's hitting Northern California the worst, but there's definitely a lot of uh, flooding down here in SoCal as well. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously we want the rain, right? But after so much drought and the fires, um, you have really big problems like flooding and mudslides and all kinds of crazy things. And a number of people have died. It's, it's really pretty, pretty awful out here right now. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I've, I've talked to you about this before. We know water in Houston, right? We, uh, uh, we've had to deal with it and it's not fun, right? It's, uh, it could do, have devastating damage uh, to your life. So, uh, uh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll keep your eyes, our eyes out for you out there. Tell us about the number of the day, 1.4, Layla. 1.4. So it's actually 1.4 million. Ah. Um, a twist. A twist. <laughs> 1.4 million um, is the number of children who were li- in Texas who are living in poverty as of 2021. Well, and that's peop- uh, that's the number of kids that fall below the federal poverty level, right? Correct. Yes. So the number of children living in families who are living below the federal poverty line. Wow. And when you look at Texas, Layla, um, and how does that fall out in Texas? I mean, what populations, what geographic regions, what kids are, are most impacted by this? 
So there's big racial disparities in terms of who's experiencing um, child poverty in Texas. Um, overall, child poverty rates have improved since 2010. They went down overall from 26% to 19% of Texas's children, but about one in four or 25% of Texas's Black or Latino, Latinx children are still living in poverty. And how do you explain the, the, the decrease in uh, the federal poverty level in Texas for, ch- for children? Yeah, so nationwide, there's been a 46% decline in child poverty, um, even since 2020. Um, and that has been attributed to expansions to the child tax credit. Wow, look at that. See? Look at that. That's what I'm that saying. That was the softball question I was pitching, and Layla just <laughs> hit it out of the park. That's look at what that. I'm saying. So uh, what, we saw, what we saw with things like the child tax credit and the economic stimulus, right, it had this very positive impact on families. And so you even see it in the data, right, in terms of the child poverty rates, Layla. Yeah, absolutely. So not only does research indicate that this credit increased families' abilities to meet their basic needs, it reduced child poverty and food insecurity, um, it also had no discernible negative effects on parental employment. So the data shows that this tax credit made things better for families without decreasing any motivation or ability to work. And what does it mean, Layla, from your perspective? I mean, you're, you're in. Dr. Bob just unplugged his headphones with his foot. I'd, I'd finish his question, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, I, and I can't stop laughing right now. Uh, so, so when we talk about uh, ch- child poverty, uh, what is the impact of these kids growing up in child poverty, Layla? I mean, you know, you really can't put a limit as to what you can measure. I mean, it shows up in their school performance. It shows up in health disparities. Um, it shows up in their ability later on in life to have positive outcomes in terms of uh, their likelihood of having employment and college graduation, all of these mm. different things. Um, I mean, really, it, it, all of those benchmarkers that we're looking for to set children up for success are delayed by, um, by poverty. And, and here's the interesting thing in Texas, right, is that historically in our country, we've often talked about kids in poverty, right? Uh, they can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, and it's often because of education. Yet, when we look at this, the schools that are more likely to be the least successful schools, the schools that are struggling to have enough money to do the right things, are those in high poverty areas. Kids who go to po- who go to college from high poverty areas are the least likely to graduate. It's almost like we need to be changing the paradigm on this, thinking a little differently about poverty because it's not as simple as uh, just work harder and you're going to be successful. Well, and I think it also is just like that narrative puts such a weird burden on children growing up in that situation that they had no control over that like they need to be, you know, the the one that the token low income child who did pull themselves up and blah, blah, when it's like, why would we just be okay with punishing every other child for their parents income level? That's ridiculous. Yeah, very good. Anything else you'd add, Layla, before we go on to uh, to our next guest? I think we should make expansions to the child tax credit permanent. There you Period. go. There you go. Lauren's, Lauren's saying the same thing. Layla Mazzali, she is the director of the Center for Social Measurement and Evaluation. Thank you, Layla, for all you do. And take care out there in California. Thanks, Layla. Thank you. All righty. Very all. good. All right. And Ooh, that any, was, yeah, that's a fun sound That's effect. a different musical interlude right there. So, <laughs> And... All right. On the line with us. Hey, let's go up to Dallas. Uh, this is, uh, we, we, leave, we love going up to Dallas. It's uh, a great city. And from Dallas, uh, we have uh, Sandra Ostad. She is uh, with City Square, which is the largest anti-poverty fighting organization up in North Texas in Dallas. Sandra, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thank you all for having me. Absolutely. Sandra, we have been talking a lot about um, anti-poverty efforts that are you know, federal or statewide in terms of, of tax credits and all of that. But we'd love to hear a little more of what City Square is doing on the ground in North Texas um, to fight poverty up there. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So City Square fights the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy, and friendship. So advocacy and policy is still very much a part of what we do, but we are a comprehensive social services organization 
that really tries to move the needle and get people out of poverty by focusing on the basic needs. Um, So what that means on the ground is that we provide uh, permanent supportive housing. We provide access to equitable health care. And we also focus on on tackling food insecurity uh, amongst our communities. Uh, And Sandra, I know that when city government, when the mayor uh, in Dallas wants to do more against the, or with the fight against poverty. Historically, he went to Larry James, who is longtime CEO of City Square. And when you think about fighting poverty overall in Dallas, I mean, it, it seems to me that there is this sort of, uh, when I visit a lot of Texas cities, Dallas, because of City Square, seems to have the leadership uh, to, to at least talk about this idea of ending poverty. Talk a little bit about that from your perspective. I mean, what is it about City Square? I mean, is it that history? Is it the leadership? What makes you guys sort of the go-to place? Yeah, absolutely. No, so, um, you know, we've been around for 35 years. So there's absolutely some history there that we can speak to. And we've been around for so long and really um, have a broad understanding of what poverty is and what it looks like on the ground. When we started out as a, as a food pantry uh, in 1988, it was really just to understand what is food insecurity and how can we make sure that we address that need. What we realized over the years with Larry James' um, yeah. leadership is that food insecurity is much more complex and poverty is extremely complex. So the way that we grew into a comprehensive social services organization is that we partnered with our neighbors, with individuals that would come to us uh, to really understand what are the challenges and barriers that you face in our community uh, and what are the lack of opportunity and lack of access uh, that tackle together. Um, to really make a difference and uh, make change in our city. So I think, to your point, because of his leadership and and, um, really looking at poverty from a this-is-on-us problem and not or a we problem and not us Mm -hmm. versus them, that has really changed the way that we have functioned and approached the challenges uh, towards poverty. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important. And just I think what's always stood out to me about City Square is the depth of connection in the community that I think kind of opens so many opportunities for y'all. And on that point, I'd love to hear a little more about, you know, what what opens up for the families and, and people who you guys serve once they those basic needs are met? Like once you guys are able to support them in those ways, what opportunities, you know, are they then able to find that maybe were an, unattainable for them before? Yeah, so, um, you know, the way that we have operated, and especially COVID expedited our growth, is that we've really leaned into how do we support our our neighbors the best. Um, So when we talk about the complexity of poverty, it's really a neighbor-centric approach in how we do case management. So, again, it's going back to the, you know, our neighbor come and, and, and seek support, and we get, we take the time to get to know our neighbors, and get to know their family situation, uh, and then address the the challenges that they face individually um, and as a family unit. So, yes, it might be access to, to food. So we connect them to our food pantry. It might be access to stable housing. So we ensure that they are either on the housing priority list, which is a collaboration of, of multiple service uh, agencies in Dallas, um, and really making sure that, again, they have that stability uh, before we then address other challenges that they might face related to um, education or workforce or um, placement or, or other um, other issues there. Sandra, uh, one of the questions we want to ask some of our guests today is that if if you could you know do one thing policy wise, if you were like uh, queen of the world for a day in Texas and you'd be able to change one thing to fight poverty, what what would that be? What's what's something that you think could be super effective in the fight against poverty? Well, so I think that affordable housing um, mm-hmm. has been a real challenge for a lot of our neighbors in Dallas. And as our community continues to grow and we see a lot of growth within Dallas and, and the state of Texas, uh, affordable housing, you know, what does it mean to be affordable? Uh, that continues to be a challenge and, and really having rights for as tenants. Uh, 
Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people, if you've been evicted or been um, incarcerated, finding houses, housing can be extremely yeah. challenging. So the system is not set up for people to have access to to housing, uh, both from my affordability standpoint and from my um, second chance standpoint, if you if you may say. So that would definitely be one one area that we need to really examine as a community and uh, on a policy mm-hmm. level. Uh, how do we provide more access uh, to affordable housing, and what does that look like? Excellent. Sandra Osted is uh, with uh, the great organization City Square up in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, Sandra, thank you so much for all that you do and everyone over there. Please send them our regards. We love City Square. Take care. Thanks, Sandra. Thank you so much for having me again. Absolutely. Very good. Uh, I want a little musical interlude, and then... This one's for you, Dr. Brown. Yeah. All right, we're now going to my good buddy, Dr. Sylvia Acosta. She's with the National Minority Supplier Development Council. That's a that's a mouthful, Dr. Acosta. How are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. We have great weather in El Paso today, so everything is wonderful. Yeah, I love this whipping around the state. Right? We go mm-hmm. from Houston to Dallas to El Paso. Uh, Dr. Acosta is a, a big figure in uh, in El Paso. And and Dr. Acosta, you have a, a long history, right, of doing working in a number of areas. And most recently, you were CEO of the YWCA, and now you're at the National Minority Supplier Development Council. And uh, when you think about fighting poverty, Sylvia, what, what sort of comes to mind for you? I mean, what, what are some of the steps that – you, you have seen actually work. Well, there's just a lot of things that can be done. And you know me, when you ask me a question, I'm going to come up with like a, a whole <laughs> list of things that you can actually I know. do, um, that you can do to fight poverty. Uh, I think, as you know, I've always been a proponent for child care. Um, child care is critically important um, for, um, for families in, in Texas. And um, increasing the availability to uh, free and reduced child care is critical. Um, I will say equal pay for women. Mm. If you were to pay women what men get paid with the same qualifications, you could reduce uh, poverty levels by an exponential amount. I think it's something like um, 40 percent. It's a it's an incredible yeah. number. I have to go back and look at my numbers. And so um, and, and why is that important? And why does that even matter? It matters because um, if you pay women what they should be paid, um, they are more readily able to pay for child care, to pay for, um, for college tuition. So right now the wage gap between um, men and, um, and, and, and I'll look at Latina women specifically, yep. is about ten dollars to $12,000 a year. Mm. ten dollars to $12,000 a year pays for tuition for an entire year, if not more, of community college. Um, it pays for child care. It pays for health care. It pays for rent for an entire year. And so when you look at the, like, you look at uh, poverty in our country, most of the people that fall under these poverty conditions are women. And when you look at, and, and women of, of every ethnicity, um, and when you look at fundamental things that you can do as a country and as a community and as a state is you need to invest in those issues that are important to women. I always say that women's issues are economic development issues. And when you solve for one, you solve for the other. And I'm so glad you mentioned uh, childcare, right? Because I know you and I have often talked about this, Sylvia, right? That if, if there were a silver bullet, right, in the fight against poverty, a high quality uh, child care is, is probably one of the more important ones, right? I mean, the fact that kids who go through early high quality early education, kids who go through high quality full day pre-K, much more likely to be successful academically and to be on that road to uh, the road out of that circle of poverty. Absolutely. Not just child care, but after school care. Yeah. Um, we know that um, if, if children have access to high quality 
childcare and after school care, they're more likely to graduate from high school and go on to post-secondary education. Um, that's a good investment for our country. That's a good investment for our communities. Um, we want to be able to ensure that every child has the opportunity to be successful and every child has the opportunity to live their dreams. But beyond that, to change the trajectory of their family and their own lives. I don't think there's anybody who says, I want to live in poverty. I want right. to be dependent on the government. Mm -hmm. I think that most people would want to have uh, opportunities to change their trajectory, uh, but we need to invest in those programs that allow for that, and childcare is one of those programs. Yeah, I mean, I think that's so important. And I'm about to go start printing T-shirts that say women's issues are economic development issues because, I mean, fair enough. I think that's lovely. Um, I would love to hear, we have been talking a lot about the child tax credit um, and the um, stimulus checks that came through COVID. And I would love to hear, you know, we love to hear from the communities across Texas. In El Paso, like, what were you seeing just, you know, in your own community, the effects of those direct you know, cash support throughout the pandemic? I will say that that was fundamentally the most life-changing and transformational program that happened during COVID. And I will say why. Because we were able to move families out of poverty and move them into a place where they could live securely um, you have to remember, when there's no financial security in a family, there's increased stress, there's increased violence, there's increased hunger, there's increased, uh, there's increased uh, uh, or, or lack of, uh, of opportunities for education. All of those things come together. And when we were able to get the child tax credits and when we had those checks going to families, the families were feeling comfortable. People were being able to, were able to make decisions, not based on fear, not based on what if, but based on sound the, a sound feeling that they could actually move beyond their poverty. What would be very interesting is to look at that, and I, I'd love somebody to do a research project on that. Is to look at and maybe follow some of those families that did receive. Of that assistance did it change their lives did they did it change the way that they saw themselves and they saw their own future um, I think we're going to learn a lot over the next several years about how COVID and the investment of government into communities and investment of government into families transformed those communities yeah Sylvia one of the big things in the news these days from El Paso is is uh, you know, the whole immigration issue. And I, I wonder yeah. if you might talk about, I mean, one of the things I love when I visit El Paso is the civic pride. People love living in El Paso. You would think it was Southern California or something, you know, where, where the weather's always perfect. You know, people just love El Paso. And, and how has this impacted El Paso? How does this impact low-income families in El Paso? What is the impact uh, of, uh, this immigration situation that's going on right now in, in El Paso, on the border at El Paso? Well, I'll just start by saying I think we may have better weather than uh, Southern California. So <laughs> There's I'm just the, El, put the that El Paso out there. energy. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. We, we got that going on. But I, I will say that El Paso leads everything they do with kindness. Um, I think that the empathy of this community far outweighs, outstretches any political situation that's going on in the country. Um, we hear a lot of rhetoric about um, the, the influx of immigrants and, and the problems that immigrants bring. That's not the case. I live in El Paso. I am in El Paso every single day. I do not see violence coming from the immigrants that come into our community. UCI, when I was at UCI, UCI did a study um, they did a meta-analysis where they looked at, um, at violence and, and crime in primarily immigrant communities, and they found an inverse relationship between immigrant communities and crime. 
because in immigrant communities, their priority is not crime. Their priority is is creating an opportunity for themselves and for their children. And so, um, yes, we have a crisis in El Paso. Um, Yes, there are a lot of immigrants that are um, coming through through El Paso. But in all of that, in in all of those moments, El Paso has responded with kindness, has supported those families, and has, because we can't let children freeze outside. We can't let women um, be outside in in, in the cold and and subject to, and children and families subject to possible human trafficking. Right. We we have to do the human thing, and this is a, a crisis of humanity more than it is a crisis of policy and politics. Wow. Hey, Sylvia, when are you going to run for mayor of El Paso? Or when are you <laughs> going to run against Texas. maybe Senator, against Senator Cruz or something? I mean, you need to, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> Uh, on, on this radio show alone, I think you've come up with three very T-shirtable campaign merch ideas. That, so, yeah, yeah. You she has, right? Yeah, yeah I yeah. think so. I'll so, run the fundraising through merch for free. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Dr. Thank Sylvia, you. Cust- I appreciate that. Dr. Sylvia Custa is with the National Minority Supplier Development Council and uh, a big leader out in West Texas and in Paso. Thank you, thank you, Sylvia, very much for all that you do and for being on the program today. Well, thank you for the invitation, and um, hello to all my friends and, and family Houstonians who are out there. All right. uh, muchos abrazos a todos. Gracias. Thank okay. you very Gracias much. Gracias a usted. All right, so uh, very good. Are we ready for a little bit of musical interlude? All right, Layla King is with us. Layla is the CEO of the United Way of Tarrant County, Fort Worth. So from El Paso up to Fort Worth. So uh, uh, how you doing, Leah? Hey, we're doing great. It's a beautiful day here in Fort Worth. (laughs) Very good, Uh, Leah. I wanted to, you know, we're we're doing a program today just focused on. on the fight against poverty. So talk a little bit about what's going on with Fort Worth. Talk about what's going on with the United Way in Fort Worth. And and how are you guys approaching this idea of ending poverty uh, in your city? You bet. Um, so first, let me just say thanks for having me and um, and Happy New Year to you, to the team. Yeah. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because it's really critical that not only organizations like United Way, but partnering agencies throughout communities are focused on um, poverty eradication. Uh, I'm happy to say that here in Tarrant County, we have a number of organizations that are focused in that area. And just to give you an example, for us uh, at United Way of Tarrant County, one of the most proven um, programs that we have is VITA the Volunteer Income Tax Assistance Program. Uh, yes, yes. VITA is essential. We've been doing it for about 12 years. And, and, and essentially what it is is, you know, we, we, we reel you in with free t- tax prep. So if you have a household income of $60,000 or less, you can come in uh, to any of our uh, resource centers. We typically have about a dozen around the county um, and get your taxes done for free by IRS certified um, individuals who are generally volunteers. The reason that's important is that we want to be sure that people are uh, getting all of the uh, refunds that they are deserving. So earned income tax credit that they're claiming that, the child tax credit and just a uh, regular income tax refund. But we found before we started doing this is that people were not um, getting all of the deductions that they uh, were able to qualify for. So let me wrap that up for you. Like in 12 years, over the past 12 years, we've processed uh, almost 80,000 tax returns. We've brought back to Tarrant County $138 million in refunds. But also we've helped these families avoid paying about $20 million wow. in, uh, in, in tax filing fees. Uh, you know, those free services that then promise you your money quick, but it's a loan, and then you have to pay a fee on the back end. Yeah. Um, we don't do that. <laughs> so we yeah. want to be sure that families don't come out of their pocket with money unnecessarily, but they also get access to all the money that they've earned. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean that's incredible. And I think, you know, this might sound kind of silly, but I – this is something I would have thought about, but for anyone who else who has watched um, not – 
Oh my goodness. It's not um the show about the guy who does meth, but the other one about the lawyer. Better call Saul. Yeah. Um they actually feature it's a rural area in New Mexico and they feature, you know, there's a little plot point where the two lawyers leads in the show threaten, you know, a mom and pop shop that's promising exactly that. The free tax help mm-hmm. and then they're keeping, you know, I think they say oh. I'm sure the IRS would be really you know, I know someone at the local IRS, you know, office and I'm sure they'd be really curious to know what it looks like when you're keeping fifty percent of, you know, people's tax refunds. Mm. Um, and so that was just, it's just interesting, you know, to, I didn't, hadn't thought that that was like really such a threat. Um, but I think it brings oh, yeah. up such an interesting point that I think oftentimes the idea of, you know, living in poverty is, I think the idea is just like, you know, it's like living not in poverty, but with less money. But I think that, you know, the more you get into the, you know, variety of, of structures and systems and just like knowledge that you get access to when you're in certain circles that you often don't if you're, you know, a lower income family or you haven't been, you know, around people who are handling money responsibly or all the time. Um, it can be really detrimental to a family's like well being. I mean, that's just really interesting. I'd love to know. No, you're right. Yeah. You're exactly right. And let me tell you a little bit. The, the thing that I want to point out about these families is these are working families, right? Mm-hmm. These are people who are working hard, generally have a yeah. couple of jobs. Um, they're, um, we call them Alice, asset limited, income constrained, and employed. And so when they get that uh, influx of money, sometimes it can be 1500 2000 sometimes several thousand dollars. It's, a, it's probably the largest single windfall of money. And we have to prepare them uh, and make sure that they have a plan so when those resources come in, that they don't evaporate as soon as they came in. And so we, while we're waiting for the IRS to process that refund, we work with those families to put them and connect them with our partners who do, um, you know, budget education training and help them come up with a plan so that they can understand pay down debt, put some money away from a rainy day and have some fun with your family. And if you have that kind of plan, it helps to continue to elevate that family and then beyond that, connect them with workforce development types of organizations so that they can earn, increase their earning capacity so eventually they're not even qualified, right? They earn more than $60,000 of the household so that they can, you know, be a little bit more self-sufficient. But you're exactly right. These are families who are working hard and, uh, and, and are doing all the right things. We just want to be sure that they get every penny that they deserve. You know, uh, Leah, one of the interesting things, right, is that a lot of times Americans think that uh, that income levels are either, you know, you're either poor, middle class, or you're rich. Uh, and, you know, maybe you're, or you're ultra rich in, in there as well. But there's so many different flavors of poverty, right? I mean, we have families that are living in, uh, uh, you know, big poverty where they're, they're making less than $10,000 a year, right? We have a lot of families, over 500,000 kids in our state come from families where the family's making less than $10,000 a year. But there's a whole group of people uh, that are part of this VITA program of yours, right? That are, that are, they're struggling, but they're working really hard to get where they need to be. And that represents a large portion of Texans, right? That still low income uh, or poverty, but they're working really hard. That's right. It's it's easily about 30% of the people here in our county alone who are working hard. They're doing all the right things, Bob. They're, they yeah. are out there doing exactly what people expect them to, not sitting around waiting on a check, right? That old yeah. stereotype. That is not what's happening. But if you think about the expense of things and just the cost of housing, you know, when you are in a household of $60,000 or less, but you can't find an apartment or a house or a mortgage for less than two thousand three, you know, twenty five hundred dollars a month, which has gone up nearly, you know, twenty percent just in the last year, it makes yeah. it very difficult for, for, you know, if there's a school project that comes up that costs extra money, for the family yeah. to be able to afford that. And that's the type of thing that we're talking about. Not families that are, you know, living, you know, to your point, you know, below twenty thousand dollars a year, and that's a whole different conversation. These are families that find themselves kind of in the gap sometimes and, and sometimes they can earn too much. Right. To receive, you know, other benefits, but not enough to be able to make it uh, without being paycheck to paycheck. So our exit question, Leah, as we as we wrap up is uh, very briefly, if you could do one thing, if you were queen of the queen for a day here in Texas and you could do one thing to end poverty, what's the one policy you might implement? 
Oh, Medicaid expansion, 100%. Medicaid, yeah. Well, <laughs> we, that brings all this yeah. money into our state, right? So that's a that's right. good. That's right. Leah King <laughs> is the CEO of the United Way of Tarrant County in Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you so much, Leah, for all that you do and for all your team does. And thank you for being on the Growing Up in America program today. Thanks, Leah. Thanks, Dr. Bob. Good all to right. talk to you guys. All righty. Bye-bye. Um, all right. So are we ready to go? We're going to go all the way out to uh, Lubbock next, right? Yeah. To so the, the do we have a musical handle? interlude for Lubbock? Do we have a little bit of Lubbock music? A little, oh, here we go. Uh. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. Oh, Dr. Bob sang it today. The sky is wide and high. Deep in the heart of Texas. All right. Out of Lubbock is Amanda McAfee. She is the Vice President of Community Impact at the United Way of Lubbock. Amanda, how are you doing? Welcome to the Growing Up in America program. Well, I'm doing well. I kind of feel like we needed some Buddy Holly or Waylon Jennings, though, for that. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, Amanda, sorry your introduction to the radio show was Dr. Bob singing in your ear. We wish it could have been avoided. But it's also, is is that like a, a UT song or something as well? I don't think so. No. Okay, never mind. You're thinking of the eyes of Texas. That's a whole different thing. Yeah, that's a whole whole different different thing. thing. Amanda, have you seen that movie, Vengeance? It's all about West Texas. I don't know if you've seen it. I have seen seen that. You know, movies in West Texas tend to get West Texas pretty wrong. (laughs) (laughs) We don't pay too much attention. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Okay. Amanda, talk a little bit about what the United Way and, and... People think of Lubbock as being this little town in West Texas, but you guys also have this very real struggle in the fight against poverty. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we do get thought of as this little town out in West Texas, but we're actually continue to be one of the fastest growing cities in America. Um, and so we've got, if you if you count county and then if yeah. you, whether you count when Texas Tech is in session or not, we're around 300,000 people wow. um, in our area. So we're, we're not necessarily this little town out in yeah. the middle of nowhere yeah. anymore. We're a big town that a lot of the people who are out in the rural areas are coming to um, for their, you you know, we're the medical hub, yeah. we're the education hub. There's a lot of things that we're doing out here. But, you know, I mean, as, as we've seen cities grow, you know, across across time, that means there's other some other bigger city challenges that we start to face um, as we continue to grow to be a bigger, bigger city and a bigger community. So how do you fight poverty out in Lubbock? What's the, what's the big thing that you guys are doing at the United Way? Well, you know, we actually just for completed a new strategic plan. Um, it got signed off on at the end of last year by our board. Um, and, and economic mobility is, a, is officially become a major strategic initiative of ours. Um, again, as, as our community has grown, we've really seen that shift. So one of the things that we're really looking at um, and, and how we address and, and finding creative ways to work with, you know, CEOs and business owners mm-hmm. and our, our local government um, it is around what we call our ALICE population, which yeah. is statewide. It, yeah. It's not just here in Lubbock, but ALICE stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed. Um, and so what that basically means is folks who are above that federally pover- federal poverty level as far as their household income, but still it could be a challenge. They're not ha- they don't have money to set aside for savings. So you know right now here in the winter, if something happens with the heater, there's no money to fix that heater. And so then we're deciding: Are we going to take money out of a different line item on our budget? Are we going to go to a payday loan? How are we going to fix the heater? Or are we going to find creative ways? And then, unfortunately, a lot of times that ends in an apartment fire or a, you know household fire, and, and our, our Red Cross is getting involved in that. You know, so we when we when we look at that, and this is kind of old data. We're supposed to get new data um, uh-huh. here soon. Um, they're telling us March, but. About 18% of Lubbock County um, is under the federal poverty level. Another wow. 40% or another, excuse me, another 30% of our households are in that Alice bracket. So basically you're talking about almost half of yeah. households in Lubbock County pre-pandemic. We yeah. know those numbers are higher now that we're struggling to make ends meet. 
Um, so there's a lot of different ways that we can address that. One of the biggest ways that we're we're directly addressing that right now um, is child care. Yep. You know, Lubbock's also got a child care desert happening. Affordable yep. child care is, is not a thing that we have. So that's one of the things that we're supporting parents with um, and making sure that they have access to affordable child care. And not just, you know, for the little bitties. The little bitties can be ex- really, really expensive. Um, but then what happens with that kiddo after school? Um, what happens with that kiddo when at spring break. So that, that's one of the biggest ways that we're addressing it right now. But like I said, we just completed this new strategic uh, um, plan. And so we're, we're looking into a lot, a lot of other ways that we're probably going to yeah. get involved and start addressing that. Very nice. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. And I think the whole idea of talking, you know, we talked at the beginning of the show of, you know, 60% of kids in Texas qualify for free and reduced lunch, which is mm-hmm. a much higher percentage of those who are under that federal poverty line, but are obviously still experiencing hardship. And I think that, you know, singling out this population that is, you know, employed is really important mm-hmm. because so much, I think, in, you know, the move towards ending poverty is is redefining the consciousness of like what does someone in poverty look like what are they doing and who are they um and they're not just people who are you know our last guest was talking about you know it's not people necessarily across the board who are you know just unemployed no one you know this whole idea of someone sitting waiting for a government check is just like not productive or real so i'd love to hear a little bit about you know when you guys you know obviously have been motivated to this priority like who were Mm. the people in lubbock who were who are in this alice category and experiencing these hardships well, I mean, I, I think it could be just about anybody. When you think about 50% of our households, it really could. You can walk into any business um, in our community, and there are people who are living in that Alice threshold. And, of course, it, it you know, that it adjusts that what that number is as far as your household income adjusts, depending on how many people are living in your household or how many, you know, kiddos you have. So those things adjust, but it really could be just about anybody. And so that's... I mean, and it's not just when we look at this problem, a lot of people say, well, if we just raise minimum wage, if we just pay people more, well, we have conversations with our CEOs and they can't just pay people yeah. more. Yeah. It's also housing costs. It's also child care costs. It's also, the, you know, the cost of smartphone plans, because how do any of us survive without a smartphone plan? You know, uh, 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 there are so many different things and costs and things that we can look at. I mean, and while we're out in Lubbock and we do have some more resources, there still are a lot of resources that aren't necessarily here because we're so far from everybody else. Um, And then that gets even, you know, even more difficult once you get out into more of the rural areas, and especially if you talk start talking about broadband and some of those other issues. But it it really takes a lot of creative approaches. You can't just say, hey, we can start paying people more and that's going to fix the issue Um, because that's not. It's, It's a lot of different factors that go into it. Amanda, as our final guest today, you get to answer a couple of fun questions at the end. We oh, always, I love it. We always wait for the, So the first one, your favorite book to read to kids. What is your favorite book that you like to read to kids? Oh, goodness. Well, I have a five-year-old in kindergarten right oh, now um, yeah. and, and boy. Um, so there is a book called The Legend of Rock, Paper, Scissors, um, and it is the best book in the world to read to a five-year-old boy. So I'm just going <laughs> to out there excellent very good all right our next question is when you were a kid what did you want to be when you were growing up oh what didn't i want to be i think probably the one that jumps to mind initially is marine biologist um then i learned i didn't have a brain for biology so <laughs> it's, it's a tough lesson many of us oh, have learned. a lot of marine biologists and doctors <laughs> I mean, who doesn't years, want to yeah. swim with the dolphins when exactly. they're a kid? exactly exactly <laughs> um when uh, when I was a kid, right, we I, I was eligible for free school lunch, and I always had a favorite mm-hmm. item. I grew up in Puerto Rico. Whenever it was hot dog day, that was the best thing. Did you have a favorite food item for school lunch? You know, the weird thing that pops in my head is square pizza, and I think, oh. I think they still serve it. Yeah. The pizza was square in the school lunches, and I, I never understood why, but... There you go. And even bad pizza is still pretty good. When it's right? square. It's still pizza. It's still my, it's my son's favorite day, too. Very good. We Let's do lunch a lunch every other day. A final question for right. Amanda. Final question, Amanda. Do you have, you know, legislative session started yesterday, can put some of us in a stressful headspace. Do you have a comfort <laughs> movie, TV show, or book that people might, you know, take on a Saturday? Oh, wow. Um, a comfort movie, t- uh, you know, um, 
Wow, what a what a question! Um, you know, my husband and I right now are enjoying the new Willow series. Um, oh yeah, we, on know, Disney. We grew, we grew up in the '80s, and so having that throwback um, come back to the screen, it's actually pretty good. So you can escape to a land with a whole bunch of different issues besides the issues <laughs> that we have. Love it. Amanda McAfee is with the United Way in Lubbock, Texas. Amanda, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for all you do. Thanks so much. Appreciate you guys. All right, have a good one. And that's uh, we're wrapping it up here for Growing Up in America. Lauren Beagle, Bob Sanborn. We will see you next time. We do this each and every day for, for children. children. See you next time. FM and FM HD1. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. 